Hello, folks. Welcome to another Truth Factor discussion. This morning, we're going to be considering Romans chapter 11. I trust that your day is going well. You know, there is so many online opportunities now to study and to talk about the Bible. Um, it's, it's one of those cases where years ago, there were just a few of us doing this. Now, everybody seems to be doing it. And we appreciate you setting aside the time to kind of join us for our study of the book of Romans. Really, really appreciate that. Um, Paul is unable to be with us to here this morning, so I'll tell you how you can participate in today's study. We have several different means established. Um, if you're watching us on our Facebook page, which is Truth Factor Live, then you can comment there in the comment area. If you're watching us on our YouTube page, then use that comment area as well. You can send questions to questions at truthfactorlive.com. Even Twitter, send a comment that way. Um, just um, identify it as Truth Factor Live or send that message directly to us and we will get that. But probably YouTube and Facebook are the two easiest ways to participate in today's discussion. All right, so Tom, let me go ahead and turn it over to you and you can let tell everybody what we're doing today. All right. Uh, welcome to everybody. Uh, as John said, we are studying Romans chapter 11, and we're, we're getting close to the end of the what I would describe as the doctrinal aspect of this letter, which is typical of Paul's letters. You may recall toward the end of Romans chapter 10 uh, that Paul talked about how Israel's rejection by God was a result of their rejection of God. And and in reality, that's what you had. What you had, and then, and, and there was a number of passages uh, from the Old Testament that dealt with, uh, uh, that basically dealt with how God was going to turn to the, another nation, turn to the Gentiles, uh, and, and so on. And, and then we find some other things in chapter eleven. What we find in chapter eleven is Paul assures Israel that God has not forgotten about them, and and for that matter, neither has Paul. And so he explains in Romans 11 how Jews, uh, let's just say it, uh, Jews can become Christians, you know, th that Jews can have a hope the way that Gentiles had a hope as Paul is writing this letter. And uh, so that's what we're dealing with in chapter 11. And in the first uh, 11 verses or the first 10 verses, which is where I want to begin uh, with this morning. And, and Michael, could I get you to read those verses for me where we're, we're dealing with asking the question, has God cast away his people? Absolutely, Tom, be glad to. I'll be reading from King James, uh, which the new King James is pretty close to the reading of it, but uh, I'll be reading from King James. I said then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew, what ye not, what the scripture saith of Elias, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they've killed thy prophets and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what hath the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so then, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then is it no more of works. 
Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then is it no more grace? Otherwise, work is no more work. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it. And the rest were blinded, according as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, ears that they should not hear, unto this day. And David said, let their table be made a snare, and a trap, and a stumbling block, and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened that they may not see, and bow down their back always. Okay, thank you there, Mike. Uh, and uh, along with that, uh, let's see, uh, John, do you have the, uh, or Brian, do you have the chat room questions ready? I do. They're in there now. Okay. All right. So the chat room question that we have for this particular, uh, this particular section of Romans chapter 11 is, what does Paul mean by the elect in verse number seven? So we've got the idea, what does Paul mean by the elect as in verse number seven? And so getting into this particular text here, what we have here is, is Paul begins by saying, I say, then has God cast away his people? Uh, and so, and one of the things to observe is this is, it, it's a lead on expression there. So that's one of the observations to be made there. And then of course, to that, to the answer to that question is, it's absolutely not. God has not thrown away his people. Now let's clarify in the text that his people as it is used here, I, uh, I, I guess it could mean all Christians or anyone that is a follower of God, but, but in the immediate context, he's dealing with the Jewish nation. And, and, and so that's what he's saying there. And, and then after that, uh, uh, what example does Paul first give to prove that he has not cast away his people? Anybody want to answer that? And, and uh, uh, I, I see that in verse 1. Yeah, I see that Paul himself says, I'm a Jew. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, as he called himself elsewhere. And he says, and, I, and I'm not cast away. He says, I've been uh, uh, brought to God. So uh, I think very first of all, the very first example of, of the Jews not being cast away, Paul himself is an example of that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's exactly right. Paul says, look at me. And, and, uh, and that's what you have. Now, uh, implied in that and of course this is what he goes into later on in chapter 11 i think is worthy of mentioning up front is uh he's talking about obviously not every single jew is going to be saved just because they're a jew there there is a remnant and and that's really the one of the main points that he deals with in this particular chapter is it, uh, uh, it's it would be select Jews that would be saved, and when uh, and I'll deal more with that when we when we talk about this word elect, uh, you know, in our chat room question and so on. Uh, but anyways, uh, the first example he gives him himself. But then after that, what example does he show that there is a remnant um, even in Israel? Well, the example is back in First Kings, the nineteenth chapter, with uh, Elias who, Elijah rather, who went into a cave, hid himself. They were seeking his life. They killed all the prophets under Ahab and, and Jezebel had arranged to kill all the prophets, and they were seeking uh, Elijah. And God says, what are you doing in this cave? Take a look. 
And so eventually when Elijah comes out and looks into the mountain, he sees 7,000 souls that God said has not bowed down their knee to Baal. They've not worshiped him. You've still got people that will help you. You're just not seeing them right now. Get busy and look because God has not forsaken his people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the only thing that I would add to that is, is this is actually getting toward the end of what would be his earthly ministry. Uh, yes. he, he was he was victorious with the prophets of Baal, and that's what caused Jezebel to to basically uh, the way the way we would describe it to put a price on his head. Yeah. You know, and and uh, and so Elijah's discouraged. He's given up, and he thinks that he's the only one. And, and, and long story short, God says, "You're not alone." there are 7,000. And and the point of that 7,000, when you get into our text, is in verse number five, it says, and this is Romans 11, even so then at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And and this is a word, that word remnant comes in. And, you know, we'll sometimes, I know I'll sometimes mention in sermons that God's people have never ever been the majority as far as i know you know uh, uh i mean uh, they're always they're they're always typically a remnant um and if you want to know what a remnant is i mean uh if anybody that's a seamstress you know well let's just say that's where quilts come from <laughs> you know people uh people use the little scraps that are left over after they've made something and that's what a remnant at least in sewing terms. And so it means a small amount. And so that's what we have taking place in this particular text. Now, after Paul says that he goes on and he says, uh, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And in verse six, if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it's no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. Somebody want to elaborate on that, uh, you know, in our discussion about grace, faith, and works, because I know that this would be a passage that would be used uh, by those who advocate faith only or, or, or even, even more than faith only, once saved, always saved. Paul's making a contrast between the old law and the new. Under the old law, you had to work to serve that law. For example, uh, let, let me take the negative side to show you. Under the old law of Moses, you were not guilty of murder until you took a life. Under the law of Christ, you can be guilty of murder just for thinking the thought. So that there's, there is a contrast between the two laws. The law of Christ is one that is a law of grace. Notice first that grace cannot be applied until first mercy is extended. Mercy is noticing the critical need. It's having compassion, empathy with a need that that individual or group of people cannot provide for themselves. Grace is extended by God, being that element that souls need and yet cannot obtain for themselves. It is the salvation of our souls provided through the blood of Christ and our obedience to that gospel, which is hearing, believing, repenting, confessing, and being immersed for the remission of our sins. Now, with the old law, that grace could not be obtained because there's no remission of sins in the in the sacrifice of bulls and goats. It took the blood of Christ to do that. But that grace was extended so that the Jews could receive the remission of their sins by obeying the gospel, Acts chapter 2, 
and later Gentiles as well could be given this grace through obedience of the gospel of Christ, Acts chapter 10 with the house of Cornelius. There are those that say then, well, you're saying hearing, believing, repenting, confessing, and being immersed are works. No, they're actions of obedience. The work that takes place in the forgiveness of our sins is done by God through the blood of Christ. We simply have to comply with it because that is to become not a part of our life, but our life itself. It's yeah. nothing that you and I can do physically except by the obedience to the gospel of Christ, changing our lives. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and you know, the Bible has so much to say about contrast, if you say contrasting, uh, 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 grace, faith, and works, and so on. And, and one of the points that we always emphasize, and I think is worthy of emphasizing here because of the text, is when we talk about works, what we mean is meritorious works. You can't earn your salvation. And, and what I find interesting is in the majority of passages in the New Testament that deal with this dynamics of faith versus works, and it may be complete, it's always contrasting the law of Moses. With well, the there's, law two, of there's two passages that come to mind very quickly, Tom. One is that Jesus said that as a servant, if we've done all that's our duty to do, we've still done that which is our duty to do. Yeah. Not done anything meritorious. But secondary to that, when you look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, Paul said, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Well, to context, it's not grace only. Yeah. It's grace through faith. And we are the creation of God, the next verse, I think it's verse 11, unto good works that we should continue in them. The works still won't save us in and of themselves. It's still going to take the grace of God. By the same token, you can't have the grace without first expressing the need, and then that need is to say, Lord Jesus, save my soul. And he says, here's how to do it. Here, here believe, repent, confess, be immersed. Be faithful unto death, adding to your faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and charity. Paul, uh, Peter said, if you have these things and, and abide in them and abound, then's when you have the promise, and that promise is by grace. Yeah, and 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 that's that's exactly right. Uh, you know, and one thing that we always need to understand about, even under the old law, you know, God made a distinction between those who did what they did based upon their faith as opposed to those who merely went through the motions and uh, <coughs> and and my point there is you know even under the old law uh faith was a part of their works and and and, and that that was there so so anyways so uh, we could spend weeks talking about grace faith and works and so on but but the point that paul is making here is you know he, he's 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 saying that the old law is not going to save you anymore and uh just doing things that way you need the grace of god and that's the ultimate point so so uh you know so just kind of moving on from there uh in in, in verse number eight we find here that uh uh, he, he, after making this point here, he talks about has uh, Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elective obtained it, uh, and the rest were blinded. Then he gives a couple of quotes here, and this one is uh, uh, in verse number eight. God has given them a spirit of stupor, 
eyes that should not see and ears that should not hear to this very day. And I ask you, where is that found? And what's the background of it or who's speaking and, and so on? Or of whom is it speaking? Anybody this remember? An amalgamation of a couple of different statements. Uh, first of all, Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 4, Yet the Lord has not given you a heart to perceive and eyes to see and, he, and ears to hear to this very day. So that seems to be part of it. Um, uh, this spirit of stupor, though, may be another uh, statement uh, out of the book of Isaiah. Um, actually, uh, was it Isaiah? Yes. Yes. If it's Isaiah 29.10. The yeah, Lord 12. Is Isaiah 29.12. Um, so, so it looks like he's probably got two quotes here that he's thinking of. You know, it's kind of interesting this this statement is made uh, i've been studying with one of the brethren here he's been helping me with isaiah and one of the things we've seen is that isaiah repeatedly comes back to this this theme the idea of their uh their spiritual blindness their spiritual deafness to seeing and hearing the things of god so uh isaiah himself requotes himself repeatedly throughout the book so uh it could be any of those quotes that he's thinking of when he when he points to this Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. And when it talks about the spirit of blindness and so on, in that particular text, the context there is uh, in verses one and two, I think it talks about Ariel. And, and uh, most people are in agreement that the Ariel is there a reference to, I think it actually something means uh, the lion of uh, the lion of, of God. Uh, but uh, they believe that it's a reference to Jerusalem. And that seems to be the context because Isaiah spends a lot of time uh, rebuking Israel and Judah for their corruption and so on. And, and the, the whole point is, is uh, it, it's, it's Israel, the people that belong to God that are stopping their eyes, that are, that are or stopping their ears and shutting their eyes because they don't want to hear. And, and uh, that's the verse that Paul is speaking of here because he's talking about, he's talking about how they've rejected God. They, they've, uh, they refuse to follow God. You look at these verses, Paul's point is, is your rejection by God is on you. It's not on God. It, it's on you. You're the one that's done the rejecting. And, uh, and, and that's the point. And, and then we get to verse number nine. And in verse number nine, here we have something that I, this is from Psalm 69, uh, verses 22 and 23. And, and there's, there's several messianic things, I think, tied to Psalm 69 and so on. It's a, it's a Psalm of David. As he's writing it, he's dealing with discouragement and so on. And this, this particular section is one of uh, the verses there are what we would call imprecatory. Uh, you know, uh, David calling upon God to curse his enemies and so on. And, and here we find, you know, David says, let their table become a snare and a trap a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and, and bow down their backs always. And, and, and the thing that you note about that as you're dealing with it is uh, David is calling upon God basically to deal with those who are his enemies. Anybody have any thoughts on that or, or imprecatory psalms and what the goal of a pre imprecatory psalm ought to be? What's interesting about that psalm in particular, uh, Tom, is that is that uh, right before it, it gives the question or the statement about what they gave him to eat and to drink, and we're told in the New Testament that those were prophetic about Christ on the cross. So in a way, what David is saying is is kind of related to the idea of the 
uh, of the coming conflict with Christ and the Jews. So that psalm actually is prophetic about the Jewish people too. So there's kind of an interesting point that Paul then brings it back to the Jewish people and says, you know, even our ancestor David called God's wrath upon you for not being obedient to the word of God. That's, I think that's pretty interesting. Yeah, 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 ex exactly. But but one of the points that I would make, and I think the point that Paul is making is, uh, you know, uh, uh, again, it's their ungodliness that brings the curse of God on them if it happens, you know, as it happens and so on. And uh, the point that Paul's getting at in this is uh, the hope of this punishment, whatever it is, is to turn people back to God. That uh, We need to understand that that was always always God's desire you know even as Jesus was weeping over Jerusalem knowing what was going to happen to that city you know if only I could have gathered you as a as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings and so on um, um, Paul's grieving you know over the state of the majority of Israel but he wants them to know that that is not the end of the story so uh, it, it, uh, is there any final thoughts before we bring in the chat room question? So let's bring in the answer to the chat room. If, if anybody have something. Brian, go ahead, Brian. Yeah, we do. We've got Gregor uh, gave us an answer there in our YouTube chat. And uh, Gregor said the following. Those saved by grace of God and following the gospel, Jews sought peace on earth. Christ gives us peace in God. So Gregor tells us, uh, who does he mean by the elect? Those who are saved by the grace of God and following of the gospel. So great points. Uh, exactly right. Yeah, exactly. So and and so th that's what you have taking place. So, so so the elect, you know, it's those those chosen, and that's the point. Uh, any other thoughts on this section? Okay, if not, let's go ahead and uh, read. This is a, a lengthy reading. I've broken down this chapter into three parts, and uh, we'll see if we get through it. <laughs> but verses 11 through 24. And John, could I get you to read those for me? You sure can. 11 through 24? Yes. Okay. Let's begin. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world, and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh, and save some of them. For if their being cast away is a reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore consider the goodness and severity of God. On those who fail, severity, but towards you, goodness. 
if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Okay, thank you there. So, so here uh, Paul gives us some reasoning behind or, or some of the hopes as God turns to the Gentiles uh, in this particular. And the chat room question, and I guess Brian's already got that up. Uh, the chat room question is, what can we learn from the character of God based upon verse 22? This is a verse that we quote quite frequently, uh, or at least I know I do. <laughs> Uh, and I, I assume others quoted in, uh, you know, to talk about the character of God. So what can, and think about that in context, uh, you know, with, with what he's dealing with here. So anyways, uh, going to our particular section here, in verse number 11, uh, what did Paul say as to why salvation had come to the Gentiles? Paul, that's, a, or Tom, that's a very interesting question the, the way that it reads, it sounds like salvation went to the Gentiles to provoke the Jews to jealousy to get them to turn back to God. Yeah, it, 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 exa exactly. And, and obviously, obviously, we know that's not the only reason. I mean, uh, the point is, is God intended for all men to be saved all along. And Paul's actually dealt with that all throughout the book of Romans. Uh, and so on. But here we find one of the side effects of, of the completion of the gospel going to the Gentiles is hopefully it would cause the, the Jews, when they know that they're rejected, to realize that, you know what, there's still a way for us to be reconciled to God. And that's one of the points that Paul wants the Jews to understand. It's not a, you know what, strike three, you're out, uh, prepare for your eternal damnation because there's nothing you can do to change that. Uh, that's not what the situation is, even though most of them would judge themselves unworthy of eternal life. The truth is, is it was still available to them. And Paul gives a great analogy of it in this particular verse here. So now what would be the result of the Jews being cast away through the reconciliation of the world, as he goes on and says here? Uh, uh, and that's in verse number 12. If their fall is riches for the world and their, and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness and so on. So what would be the result of that? Well, he says it, that uh, the result ahead, is Brian. riches to the world. Yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, the well, Jews being cast. We're, we're oh, talking about the fact. Else? Okay. Aren't we talking about the fact here that the Jews, they rejected the covenant that God made with him? Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1, for finding fault with him, bringing in a new covenant is the very same thing that he's talking about here. Yeah. yeah. If they're fall, that's exactly. the Jews' rejection. Yeah. 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 Exactly. And ultimately, the point, you know, he makes that point in verse 12. If their fall is riches for the world, that is the Jews, that they're the ones that we're talking about their fall. Uh, if you want to use the expression, their fall from grace, uh, and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness 
you know, I, I, Paul's making the point that, you know what, if, if, if uh, they have fallen from grace because of their rejection and God has accepted the Gentiles, and he's going to explain this, how much more will God accept the Jews back if they will just turn back to him? And whoever of the Jews turns back to him. So I kind of see that uh, in uh, that, uh, that particular expression here. And, and, uh, uh, and then he goes on in verse 13. I think this is interesting where Paul says, uh, uh, For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. And, uh, and you know, I just wonder, how did Paul magnify his ministry to the Gentiles, and why? And, and I think the term magnify is actually an interesting word that, you, that is used here. It's a word, as I understand in the original, indicates the idea of glorifying himself. But when we think of something being magnified, we think of something that's made bigger. And I actually think that that's a great description here of what's happening here. Um, so, so what do you Tom, all you just answered How your own question. What? You actually answered your own question just now. Yeah. <laughs> you really yeah, did. Yeah, yeah uh, absolutely. Yeah. Paul, Paul was eager to go to the Gentiles. He had gone to, much like Christ, he'd gone to his own people and was rejected. But yet he realized that the Gentile, or that the Jews came first. So wherever he went, he'd speak to the gospel to the Jews first. Romans 1.16 is evidence. And then when the, when the Jews were rejected, he'd go to the Gentiles. Yeah. He was sent for that purpose. That was why Christ made him an apostle. He was sent for the, uh, to the Gentiles. And so he used the Jews as a lesson to show why Gentiles should have the gospel and that Jews could come to it as well. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah, and that's and what I was going to say. His office. He, he made it, it's like taking, you, you made the statement, it's like taking that magnifying glass and laying it over the law of Moses and the prophets and really examining it and say, look, Jews, right here it is, you're supposed to obey Christ, not Moses, you know, and, and look at the fine print, we might say. Gentiles were allowed to see that. It magnified for them. It was glorious. It was, it was increased in its understanding. And they, the Gentiles received it gladly, provoked the Jews to jealousy so that they would do accept it. Marvelous plan God had. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's a great description. I, I like the way you made the point a little earlier about he used the Jews to, to go to the Gentiles. You know, uh, what happened with the Jews to be able to turn to the Gentiles and give them hope. But now he uses the Gentiles to come back to the Jews, you know, to provoke exactly. the Jews. And, and what I see in that word magnify is I see the idea is I, it's almost like Paul's pushing buttons. <laughs> you know, Paul, Paul's doing as much as he can to win Gentiles with the hopes that the Jews would see the, if you will, the blessings of God and the fact that God was accepting them. And his hope is that some of the Jews would say, look, I want that. No, don't I forget that, that Paul said, my heart's desire to God, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. He yeah, hadn't turned his back on his kinfolk. He hadn't done that at all. Yeah, exactly. When, that, that was chapter the, 10. When, when he says in the book of Acts that saying that you've rejected it and counted yourselves unworthy of the gospel of Christ, lo, I turn to the Gentiles. 
was not a banishing of the Jews. It was simply saying that that group, you don't want it, but the Gentiles do. I'm not going to quit preaching Christ. And that's the whole point here. It's, it's that people, Jew or Gentile, through this 11th chapter is what he's telling us, whether Jew or Gentile, the olive tree is Christ. And unless you're grafted in or come natural in that olive tree, you're cut off and burned. You're lost. Yeah, it, yeah exactly. And, and speaking of that, uh, the next several verses, Paul gives this analogy of, a, of an olive tree and branches being cut off and... Uh, others being grafted in and uh and then he also makes a conclusion based upon that that even those that were cut off could be grafted back in just as easily if not more easily than than the wild olive branches that were grafted in so, and i i might have answered another question for myself but i would say talk about this analogy of the roots and the branches as it relates to jews and gentiles anybody have any other thoughts that they want to add to that you know, you know, Tom, uh, actually, I kind of almost have a question here. Uh, one of the things that I think about when Paul's talking about this idea of the uh, of the purpose of magnifying his ministry is to provoke a jealousy. Now, we would assume that that idea is to provoke a jealousy towards salvation. But, you know, I can't think of an example in the New Testament where, and there's a lot of times where the ministry to the Gentiles provokes the Jews, um, but I can't think of an, uh, an example where they were provoked to obedience. Uh, uh, usually they're provoked to rejection. Uh, you know, you might think, for example, when Paul is talking in Jerusalem and he, as he's in the temple and, and right up to the point he gets that I've been called to the Gentiles and they all scream, hey, away with such a man, if such a man shouldn't live. So I wonder if, it, I, I, I'm just kind of thinking out loud here. So I'm not, uh, I don't think I have an answer, but because there's so many times where the provocation was to reject Christ, maybe provoke doesn't just mean to provoke to salvation. Uh, maybe it also means the idea of just provoking them to make a decision, not just to look at Christ, but to decide whether they choose Christ or they reject Christ. That maybe Brian, that let, let me jump in and help a little bit, maybe. Uh, you remember in Hebrews, the 10th chapter, where the apostle uses the term provoke unto love and to good works. The word provoke is there. It means stir them to consideration, stir them to get this done. So that when Paul uses it here, provoke them unto jealousy, it's simply a matter of mentally saying, make you think. Look at what you're doing. Jeal I, I think the word that throws us off is jealousy. Look at envy, and you're right. I don't know of a single example in all the New Testament where anybody obeyed the gospel because of being jealous of someone else. It's not there that I know of. What Paul's saying is provoke these people to thinking, to realizing this is the fulfillment of prophecy. And that's what Jews should have known first because the law was given to them. But Gentiles understood it so well they received it that they didn't hesitate to obey it now with no difference between jew and gentile christ having broken down that middle wall of partition between us the gospel is all we need to provoke anybody to obedience to the gospel of christ to urge them to stir their minds to obedience that's that's my understanding of provoke 
Yeah, and, and if I could add something to that, Brian, to your question, I, I, I agree with you. I don't think there's a specific verse that does, but I want you to think about virtually everywhere that Paul went, even in Gentile communities and where Gentiles would listen, he also received some of the Jews. Uh, many Jews were obedient to the faith and willing to accept it. So, so I, I just wonder, as Paul did what he did, how many Jews were there that as they, they were glad that the Gentiles were accepted. And uh, they were willing to accept Christ. And, but they were, and we've already talked about this, they were the remnant. You know, they, they were that small percentage and so on. But every place he went, he would always start with the Jews and, and he would get, typically, he would get a small following of the Jews. To so go the only thing the I can think of so, where there were Jews that rejoiced over this was Acts chapter 11, whenever Peter yeah. returns to Jerusalem, and it says there specifically that they glorified God uh, for the salvation had come to the Gentiles. Uh, yeah. But in that case, of course, they're already believers, but it still seems to have its impact there. So, so again, yeah. like I said, I guess I guess we're all in agreement here that the kind the concept of provocation isn't exclusively a provocation to to obedience. It's simply a provocation to action. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And, and, you know, when we, and, and you know, I, I, I just think, I wonder how many of those Jews that actually had good and honest hearts, and I, I could even put Paul in this category and so on, you know, as they followed Judaism and so on, and when they heard this, maybe they were not quick to accept it at first, but the more they thought about it and the more that they saw what was going on, it would cause them to surrender. Uh, maybe not an ideal example of that, but I think about Nicodemus, you know, uh, John 3, a, a Pharisee, comes to Jesus by night, more than likely secretly, because he's seeing something in Jesus, but he's not yet ready to fully commit to him, at least as we understand. Uh, but in time, as he observes what happens, uh, he does. He, he ends up committing to Jesus and so on. So, I, and like I said, that's not a perfect analogy of what we're dealing with. Um, but Paul's hope is that there will be Jews that when they see what happens, they too will turn or turn back to God, whatever the circumstance is. So a, a good discussion on that. And there's a there's just a whole lot that could be said about these branches and vines. And, and I'm going to say a final word on that. I'm going to give it to John. <laughs> So we can get moving. Go ahead, John. Okay. Well, here's, here's something to think about. Think about the, the story of the prodigal son, because that is in, in reference to, to the Jews effectively rejecting God. You have a child who has a parent who has a disobedient child, and then you have a child that's obedient. The disobedient child sees the parent's favor for the other child. And seeing the parent's favor on the other child prompts the other child back to obedience. The Jews would have observed God's favor upon the Gentiles and his disfavor upon the Jews themselves. And now they see this child being favored by God, they want to be back in God's good favor. And hopefully then that would, and there might be another way of looking at what Paul is saying here, is, is the point. Yeah. And yeah, it fits it, in it, line it, with what's been said. You know. Yeah, it, exa exactly. So, so now, uh, um, um, what reasons were the original branches broken off? Disobedience. 
exactly and and that's the point they were they were broken off uh, because of a uh, disobedience or the word that's used in verse 20 is unbelief you know they didn't believe and that's why they were broken and then paul goes on and says you talk about here's the gentiles here you stand by faith and so on and then what warning does paul give them in verses 20 and 21 to the and this is to the gentiles yeah, he says if they could be cast away for unbelief, you can too. Yep. And exactly. what's neat about that is that if we understand what he's saying, the most most powerful argument against the concept of once saved, always saved is Israel. Yeah, absolutely. And notice notice he talks about their attitude. Do not be haughty. Don't don't you dare be arrogant and don't you start thinking that you're it. Or you know, don't don't you think that you're it now? You know, in an arrogant way, and so on. Because if God cut them off, He can cut you off. He can cut you off too. And that's the point to be made there. And then in verses 20 and 21, uh, 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 actually, I just dealt with that. So uh, uh, the final question in this particular section here is: Was it possible for the natural branches to be grafted back in? Certainly so. Well, yeah, they come at all. They had come from that. They had come from the trunk of that tree they could go back to that tree uh, the light is in the tree not the branch and so once the branch is severed the branch is beginning to die put that branch back into that tree it can live again and that's where paul talks about they rise to life again yeah, yeah exactly you know and while this might be a crude crude analogy or something you know think of a, a, a craftsman working in his office and he cuts off his finger and he rushes to the hospital. Uh, what's the best option for them to find uh, somebody else's finger and try to attach it or to reattach his own? You know, <laughs> I, like I said, that's crude illustration, but, uh, but if you think about it, I mean, uh, 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 the branches, you've got a wild olive branch. It's still an olive tree, so it's compatible with it, but it's not as compatible as the original branch that was broken off. If there's a way to graft that one back in, it's already there. You know, or its elements are already there and so on. And so Paul's saying, God can accept you again. God can bring you back. And, and, and so that's the whole analogy of this, uh, the, of this olive tree and so on. And, and, and again, he's, he's showing the rejection of Israel. And you see in this whole section here, this is about faith. And, and I want us to remember that is that that uh, uh, the Jews needed faith and they needed to obey the gospel, as Mike pointed out a little bit earlier, just like everybody else. Uh, the old law wasn't going to work for them anymore. And and uh, but they still had hope. And that's his point. So anyways, let's get to this last section so we can wrap this up. And this is verses uh, 25 through 36. And Brian, could I get you to read that for me, please? Absolutely. Uh, verses 25 through 36. Oh, wait, 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 real quick. Uh, chat room question. Oh, uh, oh, of course. I'm sorry. Yeah. I forgot too. Uh, so our I chat room question, that. what can we learn from the character of God in verse 22? And Gregor Hinckley gave us an answer in YouTube. Gregor Hinckley said, uh, eternally forgiving. Those who have fallen are dealt with, but those that remain in his kindness ask forgiveness. He saves. Forgiveness is a continuous act, not a single event. So uh, Gregor gives us the idea of God's mercy is revealed in that, uh, in these things, uh, that God forgives those who desire forgiveness. 
Yeah, it, it, exactly. And like I said, we use this verse, behold the goodness and severity of God. We can't ignore the fact, we cannot ignore the wrath of God. You know, I, I mean, it, 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 uh, ignore it to your demise or, or to your peril. Because I mean, because I mean, uh, we need to understand that God expects us to obey him. And and that's that's some of the problem with the once saved always saved teaching. I'm I mean it really does it really does uh, uh, dismiss the severity of God and so on. I mean you know it, it it magnifies the goodness and dismisses the fact that God will hold accountable those who don't follow Him. So so anyways, uh, good good point there. Thank you, Gregor. Now let's get to this final section. Uh, we've got about, I guess, about 10 minutes or so. It was a little after the hour, but. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so, these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they may they also may obtain mercy. For God has commanded them all to disobedience, or committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. Oh, the depth and the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Okay, thank you, Brian, for reading that. So uh, the chat room question for this particular section here, dealing with the, sal oh, the salvation of Israel, is how are the gifts and calling of God irrevocable? And, and, and in this text in particular, you know, as it's dealing with what's going on here, so... So uh, give some thought to that here. Now, concerning this section, uh, when we think about the uh, Gentiles and so on, what attitude does Paul warn against them in verse number 25? Well, don't be wise in your own conceits. Uh, don't, don't think that your opinions are greater than God's. That's a concept that mankind still struggles with because they think they know more about life and liberty and goodness and morality than God does. It's interesting that Peter said God gave us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him that called us to glory and virtue. So the Jews need to understand that though as good as the law of Moses may have been, it also made them conceited. Don't get that way. Listen to Christ. Uh, exactly. Any Brian? Do you have something? Or? No, I'm sorry. No. Okay. Okay. So, so, and 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 that's the point. He warns against us: don't be haughty, you know, and so on. And then there's another interesting word here in verse number 25. Uh, easy to pass over if you studied throughout the Gospels. If you, if, you know, if you've done it for years, he makes the point there: 
uh, uh, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. What, what's interesting about this is it's the first time it's used in Romans. And uh, obviously, what's he talking about when he deals with the mystery? You know, in Ephesians Christ. 3, oh, go ahead, Mike. No, the gospel of Christ is a mystery. Yep. Go ahead, it, go ahead Brian. Oh, I was going to say, in Ephesians 3, he says the mystery of Christ is that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ. So, uh, you know, uh, there he tells us the mystery is that the Gentiles and the Jew would be reconciled as one. Yeah, exactly. And, and I believe that um, from a uh, timeline standpoint, it's generally believed that Galatians was written well before Romans. So the concept would have already been circulated and so on. And uh, it, it almost seems like Romans is written to explain in more detail what Paul briefly talked about in Galatians. And it's only two chapters there, Galatians 3 and 4. Uh, and, and he spends about eight, eight to ten chapters in the book of Romans setting all of this up. So, so uh, but, but it's just interesting that he says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery. Um, uh, this fact that the Gentiles are a part of the salvation, and, and that's what he's been dealing with in, in this entire chapter, lest you be wise in your own opinion and blind and so on. So he makes that point. Now in verse 26, what does Paul mean when he says, and so all Israel will be saved? Any thoughts on that? I believe he's talking about the all-inclusive of Jew and Gentile, thus all Israel shall be saved is a spiritual connotation that those who obey the gospel become children of God uh, by prophecy, children of Israel, you know, the seed of Abraham and all that through the book of Galatians, I believe Galatians chapter 4 uh, explains that, but uh, I, I really believe that it, at verse 26, uh, so all Israel shall be saved. He's talking about all God's children, those that obey the gospel. And you might include those that were faithful under the old law. And if you want to go back one farther dispensation, go back to the patriarchal law. And you got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They all followed God so that you, you become now a spiritual Israel. For it is written, look at the prophecy, there shall come out of Zion, out of Jerusalem, the Mount Zion, meaning that gospel or that, that place of utterance, there should come out of Zion the Deliverer, that's capital D, that's got to be Christ, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Going to get rid of the sin of Israel, for this is my covenant unto them, verse 27, when I shall take away their sins. Israel still had their sins under the old law. There was a remembrance made every year of them. When Christ died, that concluded the remembrance of sins. They were remitted. They were forgotten. And under the new law, they are remitted, forgotten, in our obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. After our baptism, we must walk in the light as God is in the light, gives us fellowship one with another. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. We stay within that pathway. We're in Israel spiritually. Yeah, exactly. And and understand that that would not be something foreign to what Paul has talked about in Romans. Uh, Romans chapter, yeah, Romans chapter two. Remember when he talked about circumcision in verses yes, twenty-eight sir. and nine? 
yes, 29, sir. you know, uh, he's, uh, he's not a Jew who's one outwardly and circumcision yes. is of the heart. And, and then another verse was in Romans nine and in verse number six, uh, uh, it is not that the word of God has taken no effect for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor Correct. are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. And he goes on about Isaac. So, so uh, the point is, is true Israel is those that are following God. The idea of Israel is God's chosen people. Yes. Uh, you know, and, and so I, I think that that's the way he's using it in this text, which is what the point that you are making here. And then after that, he, he goes on in this text and, and he gives another Old Testament uh, passage. This likely is taken from Isaiah chapter 59. And, uh, and the point that is being made here is this deliverer will come out of Zion. And obviously he's talking about Jesus you know, Jesus and what he's going to do. And he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob for this is my covenant with them. I will take away their sin. So, so he's making the point that God is, God had plans all along. And this was written some about 700 years before Romans. Uh, God had plans all along to bring Christ into the world and to make a salvation that's available to everyone. And that included giving opportunity for the rebellious children of God to come back. So, yeah. Any other thoughts on that? It's kind of interesting that, you know, he, he then makes the observation in verse number 28. Uh, 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 he has a contrast in relationships between the Jews and the Gentiles. And what is that contrast? That, the, that they're enemies. Is that the idea we're, Thinking yeah, about here. yeah, yeah, yeah. Concerning so the gospel, go ahead. Yeah, they were enemies beforehand because of the law of Moses, according to Ephesians chapter two. Now they're enemies uh, because the gospel, because those Jews that have remained with the law of Moses failed to reconcile with Christ. Yeah, exactly. And they were enemies, but now notice the second part. Concerning the election, they are beloved. By yeah, beloved by the fathers. That's really neat because you know in times past. Uh, that that wouldn't have been the case, but but now they're beloved to the fathers. Yeah. So yeah, and, and I think he's talking about the Jews there. You know, in that particular time. Uh, in other words, God still cares. You know, in spite of everything that the Jews have done, and even in recent times, as Paul writes this, namely, uh, crucifying Jesus, and the way that they persecuted Christians and so on, God still cares. He still cares about them. And, and he still, he's, he sits there like that father, you know, we mentioned earlier, the prodigal, the, the father of the prodigal. Uh, he's waiting. He's waiting for his child to come home. And, and I think that's kind of the point that Paul's trying to get to in this entire chapter, in this entire section and so on. And so that brings us to like verses, uh, verse 29, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. We'll deal with that in a minute as we get to our chat room question. But in verses 30 through 32, how was the salvation of the Gentiles a source of hope where the Jews were concerned? You know, what I see here is the idea that uh, if, if the Gentiles who from the beginning of Romans we've been pointing out are, were by their nature, you know, children of wrath. In, in other words, they were uh, by the nature of not having the real, real word of God, not they were blind and their understanding darkened then if they can be saved, anyone can be saved. So that gives a great hope to every Jew that should exist, that 
that if if these deplorables could be saved, then then the the Jews that uh, any Jew could be saved. Yeah, and, and, and you know, uh, yeah, you were once disobedient, but now now you're saying, you know, uh, something else you might read into this is is the fact that you know, uh, if someone falls away having been a child of God, can they come back? I think that's emphasized, you know, uh, last part of James, Galatians 6, and other passages just point toward the fact that, you know, even if you fall away as a child of God, he'll take you back if you repent. And so I think that's kind of the analogy he's using here. Uh, you were disobedient, and God forgave you. The gen you, you Gentiles, you were disobedient, and God, God was willing to uh, accept you and save you. He'll accept the Jews, even though they're disobedient now, if they repent and they return to him. And I think that's the point that he gets back to in this. And, of course, that leads to uh, 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 the God, how God is described here in uh, verse, uh, verse number 33, uh, where he makes the point there, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And he talks about how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. So, so he makes the observation in these verses here that, that God's grace, God's love, God's wisdom, everything about God is, is it's so great we cannot fully grasp it. And, and, and that's a part of why God's willing to forgive somebody that doesn't deserve it. You know, we sometimes sing songs about uh, he saved a wretch like me. And, and, uh, and, of course, that's based on biblical concepts. You know, Paul talking about uh, Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am chief. You know, I, I'm unworthy. I, I don't deserve anything from God. But his wisdom and his knowledge, his grace, his love, everything about him, they're unsearchable. His judgments and his ways are past finding out. They're greater than we can fully grasp. But we have hope with what he has revealed to us in those things. Any thoughts as we wrap this up? Cause we're about done here. So, so, okay. Well, so, so we'll stop there. One, one final question here. What things are of him and through him and to him? Well, in verse 36, all things. Yeah. If you'll notice from verse 33 on, there isn't any creature God ever created that could advise him or supersede him. He's the greatest of all the great things. He is the creator. So at verse 36, of him or by him and through him and to him are all things. Therefore, to God from us must be glory forever. We cannot thank God enough for all that he's given to us and I think even programs like this need to be included in our Thanksgiving. We're granted an opportunity to study God's word without ever being uh, without ever being accosted for that. We are at liberty to study it, and we are certainly by that study commanded to obey it. And it's all through the mercy and grace of God that we have these abilities. All right. Yeah. Very good, Mike. And thank you for that. And and uh, I've got one final comment that I want to make after we do the chat room. So the chat room question, uh, how are the gifts of God and calling, how are the gifts and calling of God irrevocable? Uh, any answers, Brian? 
Yes, we do. We have a uh, Gregor Hinckley gave us an answer in our YouTube chat. Uh, Gregor's answer was God is eternal. And in all things, he has been faithful. So we are guaranteed for all time by God. Yeah, exactly. And, and thank you, Gregor, for that. And, and again, you, uh, the, the whole point there is uh, uh, God, God's able to keep his word. And, and, and when you think about the Jews and the Jews being God's chosen people, we've already talked about a lot of these things. But remember, Abraham preceded the Jews becoming a nation. God made a promise that included all nations being blessed. That's been fulfilled as Paul writes this. And the only way that can be fulfilled is if God included the Gentiles. And so the Jews needed to consider that. Now, here's my final point. And that is that with this verse, Paul concludes what we call the doctrinal section of the book of Romans. Now, there's still some doctrinal things he's going to deal with, obviously. But he gets practical starting in chapter 12 and verse 1. So uh, typical of Paul here, he's gone into this lengthy discussion. We're all sinners. We all need Christ. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, you need Christ. And uh, uh, that's why Romans is such a wonderful book for us to give consideration to. And, of course, we're only two-thirds done with it. But anyways, uh, with that, I, re I uh, conclude this chapter. Thank you, everybody. We went a little long. Uh, but hopefully it was worthwhile. And I turn it over to you, John. Appreciate that, Tom. And appreciate you leading us through our discussion. Um, we appreciate your joining us for our study today. We will continue our study through Romans next Wednesday. And we will be in chapter 12. And I believe Brian is the one who is slated to be able to, to lead that discussion. So, and I'll do this real quick because we're over, we're over time but we'll do this next Wednesday at 11 o'clock a.m. Central Time. That's 12 o'clock on the Eastern Board. And Pacific will be 9 o'clock. I think that's all right. Next Wednesday, right here, truthfactor.com. Hey, have a wonderful week.